Well, what a beautiful day the Lord has made. We're lacking some electricity. We've got beautiful snow, gorgeous weather. The Lord's given us an early Christmas. If you could open your Bibles to the book of Psalm. We're going to be doing part two of last week's sermon. Today is going to be an exposition of verses 13 through 19. In review, last week's sermon, I don't normally do a review when we're doing expository teachings, but we kind of left on a cliffhanger, so to speak, right when things were getting pretty, pretty amazing with that theophany and the supernatural war. So in review of last week's sermon was uh, verses 1 through 12, which included Yahweh, the rock of our salvation, and David's affliction. We also saw how a believer should adore God, not just merely love him, but truly adore God, and that God is our strength, our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our buckler, the horn of our salvation, our high tower, and that we must not just believe in God and Jesus, but we must put our trust in him and put our trust in Christ alone for salvation. We also saw a theophany which is a visible manifestation of God, a theophany, and we're going to continue that theophany today, of how the Lord came to help David when he cried out for help, and how the Lord can also come to us when we cry out to him for help. We saw that God decreed an earthquake to shake the earth and its foundations. We also saw last week how smoke came out of God's nostrils, and fire came out of his mouth as he flew on his cherub, in, in wrath and fury. Perhaps ending last week's sermon at verse 12 was premature, but for the interest, interest of time, we did stop at verse 12. Because again, that's when a war broke out. And this war continues through all the way from verses 17 through 19, which we'll go through today, which we'll finish today. A war between lightness and darkness, good and evil. And my friends, that's what happened at Christ's resurrection. The battle between God and the hosts of hell happened at resurrection. Satan and all of his demons were at the Lord's grave, determined that the Lord Jesus would never rise from his tomb. Then God lowered the heavens and came down in his greatest display of power and glory. This is not some fairy tale. This is not some fiction story from some series uh, or an end times novel. This is the word of God, thus saith the Lord. When Christ died on his cross, the whole world became dark. And I mean dark. As it says in Luke 23, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. He breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him to Galilee stood at the distance watching these things. Amen. And today, 
Many attribute their results of prayers. Uh, They'll claim there's power in prayer. There's even a bumper sticker that says there's power in prayer. Or they'll say there's power in my prayer. Though that may be true, we must glorify God by saying there's power in God who answers those prayers. The power is in the omnipotence of Almighty God. He is the one that answers those prayers that we submit unto Him. And by God's grace and by God's power, He answers our prayers according to His will. So I pray that the previous sermon last week, verses 1 through 12, and today, verses 13 through 19, that we will better understand God's sovereignty and God's sovereign power as he responds to our prayer. And so today, again, we will cover verses 13 through 19, part 2 of this theophany and the supernatural warfare. Let us begin with verse 13. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and disconfitted them. Then the channels of water were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. This is the word of God. Beginning with verse 13, David said, The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Jehovah's voice thundered in the skies and heavens, and the highest was his voice. Calvin described this thunder as the following, and I quote, But David, in transcribing the phenomena of the atmosphere, rises under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, above the mere phenomena themselves, and represents God to us as the supreme governor of the whole, who, at his will, penetrates into the hidden veins of the earth, and thence draws forth exaltations, who then, dividing them into different sorts, disperses them through the air, who again collects the vapors together, and sets them in conflict with the subtle and dry heats, so that the thunder which follows seems to be a loud, pealing voice proceeding from his mouth. End of quote. This title, highest here, is the Hebrew word Elion, Elion, which is an elevated supremacy of the Most High God. That God is Elion, the Most High God. The most elevated supremacy of anything in this world is our God, Elion. Similar to the Lord's resurrection from his grave, God can bust through or break through the darkness of demonic principalities and be victorious in and through all matters. He did it for David and he will do it for us today because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As one author said, At the approach of God, the earth is convulsed. His rage is fierce. 
pictured by smoke billowing forth from his nostrils, intense fire issuing in torrents from his mouth, and the great coals of flaming hurtling against his enemies. As he descends, as God descends, riding upon a cloud that represents a cherub, the world is shaken by a violent storm of darkness, thunder, lightnings, and hailstones plummeling the enemy in a massive bombing attack. Just as in the crossing of the Red Sea, the waters of the sea and rivers recoil in fear at the titanic display of the wrath of Almighty God. That's a graphic depiction of God coming to David's aid. He can do that for a nation. He can do that for a family. He can do that for the universal church. He can do that just for this local church, corporately. And he also can and will do that for Christians individually. The hailstones and the coals of fire here in verse 13 are God's weapons of heavenly vengeance. As it says in Ephesians chapter 1, 19 through 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which we worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Next, moving on to verse 14. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them. And he shot out lightnings and disconfitted them. This word disconfitted them is the Hebrew hamam, which means to put into commotion, by implication to disturb, to destroy, to consume, crush, to trouble, or to vex. This is what God does. He disconfits the enemies of God's people. Spurgeon said this of verse 14. The lightnings were darted forth as forked arrows upon the hosts of the foe and speedily scattered them. Boastful sinners proved to be great cowards when Jehovah enters the list with them. They despise his words and are very tongue valiant. And when it comes to blows, they fly apace. The glittering flames and the fierce bolts of fire disconfitted them. God is never at a loss for weapons. Woe be unto him that contendeth with his maker. God's arrows never miss their aim. They are feathered with lightning and barred with everlasting death. Fly, O sinner, to the rock of refuge before these arrows stick fast into thy soul. Oftentimes, when heralding the gospel to public people, to to people in the public, I will shout out, flee from the wrath of God. Flee from your sin and flee to Christ for salvation. And here Spurgeon says, Fly, O sinner, to the rock of refuge before those arrows stick fast into thy soul. You see, this text is not saying that God actually held thunderbolts in his hand, as our imagination may portray to us. But this is metaphorical language of how God's lightning bolts are in fact decreed by God himself. And he has many various ways of sending down lightning bolts. Actually, it could be literally lightning coming from the sky that can destroy a person or destroy a home or start a fire. Verse 15. 
Then the channels of water were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. Those trials, difficulties, or channels of deep water in our lives can be blessings from God. But we need to understand that they are blessings from God, that they're trials from God. And we experience these deep channels of water, these trials, these tragedies, these temptations, even persecution that God is decreeing in our life, that we must embrace Christ as Christ pulls us through them and rejoice in those sufferings as we trust in Christ through these trials, through these channels of water. Matthew Henry said this, The greater the difficulties are that lie in the way of deliverance, the more glorious the deliverance is. For the rescuing of David, the waters were to be divided till the very channels were seen. The earth was to be cloven till the very foundations of it were discovered. End of quote. If you don't have Matthew Henry in your library, get him. He's he's amazing. God's vengeance will make the most sophisticated militarist invasion or the most prolific motion picture look like a walk in the park. God does amazing things. Some of these Christian movies, quote-unquote, I mentioned it before, The Passion of the Christ wasn't even a true depiction of what Christ truly went through on that cross, though it was very graphic. Charles Spurgeon said this, So tremendous was the shock of God's assault in arms that the order of nature was changed, and the bottoms of river and the seas were laid bare. God changes the order of nature at his will. As we continue on to verses 16 through 19, one author said this, In striking symbolism, God smashes, bruises, crushes, wounds, and maims the foe until he retreats in utter defeat. Then he reaches down and takes Christ from the still sealed tomb. Hallelujah! Christ is risen. Not only does God raise him from the dead, but he gives him a triumphant ascension through the enemy's realm and glorifies him at his own right hand. Thus, as Paul says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Close quote. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. When Christ busted out of that tomb and bodily rose, that is when he forever defeated death and conquered sin on behalf of those who are saved. Verse 16. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. In a salvific sense, God did this for every born-again follower of Jesus. In John chapter 6, verses 43 through 51, is a powerful passage, especially for Reformed Christians, for Reformed theologians. This is important because it tells us soteriology. is one of the passages that defend the doctrine of soteriology which is the study of salvation, or how one becomes saved. And Jesus, therefore, beginning with verse 43 of John 6, Jesus, therefore, answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them to 
Jesus, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, who has seen the Father. means that Jesus did, but we haven't. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. He who trusts in Christ alone for salvation has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. This would be a great passage for communion. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Praise God that Jesus is our bread of life. It says in verse 40, verse, or excuse me, Psalm 40, verse 2, He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my, my steps. God brings the lost sinner out of the world, out of the horrible pit, out of the horrible messes that we put ourselves into, out of the miry clay. He is the master potter. We are the clay. and He creates a new creation in Christ. And he establishes our steps as we walk with Jesus daily. David said the waters were deep and many. They weren't just many. They were deep. And they weren't just deep. They were many. These troubling waters. As we go through troubled waters ourselves, church, we must put on Christ as our life preserver. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Christ as our life preserver. Verse 17. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. David mentioned how he was hated, how his enemies were strong. They didn't just hate him. They were strong enemies that hated him. Last week we heard that David was afraid of them. He actually was in fear of them, telling God, I'm scared, I'm afraid of them. In John 15, 18 through 25, Jesus forewarned about the world's hatred of Jesus and that if we truly are living in godly in Christ Jesus, that the world will hate us and that we too will endure persecution. Jesus said in that passage, If the world hates you, and now that I and no excuse me, if the world hates you, and know that it hated me before it hated you, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. 
But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in the law, they hated me without a cause. Regarding the word for here, this is an interesting word, the word for in verse 17. We've heard the old saying over and over, some probably too much, you know, whenever you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. We've all heard it, it's kind of, I repeat it sometimes, we've heard it too many times, but I really want to place an emphasis on this word for here in this verse 17. For they were too strong for me. One commentator says this, one author, When we have been rescued, we must take care to ascribe all the glory to God by confessing our own weakness and remembering the powers of the conquered enemy. God's power derives honor from all the incidents of the conflict. Our great spiritual adversary is a strong enemy, indeed, much too strong for poor, weak creatures like ourselves. But we have been delivered hitherto and shall be even to the end. Our weakness is a reason for divine help. Mark the force of the four in the text. Mark the force, the force of the four in this text. For they were too strong for me. Fictional Star Wars fans will say, May the force be with you. But Christians will plead, May God be with you. May God help us. May Christ God Almighty be my King and Lord, which He is. May He help me. May my His Holy Spirit help me. May His Word be a lamp unto my feet. Because for they, the enemies, were too strong for me. Because our enemies are too strong for us. My sins are too strong for me. But God can help lift us up out of that mire and that clay and that pit of temptations, and that pit of sin that we keep going back to as a dog returns to his vomit. Verse 18. Folks, this is good news. It doesn't sound like a a very uppity, uppity, uppity sermon to be talking about all of these terrible things, but this is the text. But if we trust in Christ truly, in the triunity of the Trinity... In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and His Word is our compass, is as our altimeter, God will pull us through and see us through. Verse 18. This is victory from the victor. Verse 18. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. Another interesting word. Stay. I don't think, I've never heard anybody teach what, what it means to stay. I tell my dogs, stay. But that's not what this word means. Sometimes my wife tells me, stay. But that's not what this means. David was being tormented by disastrous, destructive, dangerous, troubling waters. But God was his stay. God was his stay. This stay is the Hebrew word, meshem, which is God as his stay, his support, and his staff. For those of you in here, we at least have one uh, for sure that's been in the military. Many people don't realize this, unless you worked for a in the unless you were in the military or a law enforcement agency that was more militaristic. But we had on our uniforms called a stay. 
and it looks like a pair of goofy upside-down suspenders. What if you walk in the men's locker room or the women's locker room, you would see people with their shirt on and their trousers off, and they had a pair of suspenders that were upside down attached to their socks, long elastic bands, two on each leg, on the inner and outsides of the legs, and they snapped onto the bottom of your uniform shirt. And that elastic pulled your shirt down and pulled it down tight as it pulled up on your socks. And then you put your slacks on over that and then your shoes. It's called a stay to keep your gig line perfect and to keep your stomach line perfectly flat for inspection. For the church, Christ is our stay. He is our perfect one. He is the one, as Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like a person in the military or in law enforcement puts on their stays before inspection to make things look perfect. And the only perfection that we can have is Christ himself by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. For the church, Jesus Christ is the anchor of our salvation and the captain of our salvation. He is our stay. As it says in Hebrews 6, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in order of Melchizedek. But God was not only David's stay, he was not only his captain and his anchor. In verse 19, it says that the Lord delivered him. The Lord delivered him. There was success because the Lord delivered him. Verse 19, he brought me forth also into a large place. Remember, Christians, it's not, we don't want just to know the verses and study the verses. It's so important. And we don't want to just believe the verses. Explanation and application and demonstration. We must apply these verses in our lives by putting trust in the Lord that he too will do this for us just as he did for David. Maybe not in the same extreme manners, but he does. If you're in this congregation or listening to this sermon online, if you're born again, Christ delivered you from something horrific that was coming your way. And he continues to deliver us from sin and temptation throughout the rest of our Christian life. Verse 19, he brought me forth also into a large place. He didn't just bring him forth, he brought him into a large place. And he delivered me because he delighted in me. God did not merely deliver David. Let's zoom in on this uh, deliverance recorded here in verse 19. First, he brought him forth. He brought David forth. Secondly, he brought him into a large place. He brought him into a bigger and better place. A safer place. A place away from the soon coming death that was knocking on his door. And the truth is, is when God does call a saint home, that's truly bringing us to the best, bigger place. Thirdly, he delivered him. He delivered David. And why? The answer is here. Fourthly, because he was delighted in him. Because God found favor in David. God's favor was upon David, and there was a particular fruit from this deliverance. God brought David into a new place in his life. 
where the fruit could flourish and blossom. Church, let us dive deeply into the well of God's mercies. Let us dive deeply into the well of God's mercies. Let us not be a church that doesn't do that. Let us take advantage of these blessings that the Lord has and trust in him even more. As Spurgeon said, He delivered me because he delighted in me. Free grace lies at the foundation. Oh, man, by grace we have been saved. Free grace. Free grace lies at the foundation. Rest assured, if we go deep enough, sovereign grace is the truth which lies at the bottom of every well of mercy. Deep sea fisheries in the ocean of divine bounty always bring the pearls of electing, discriminating love to light. Why Jehovah should delight in us is an answerless question and a mystery which angels cannot solve. But that he does delight in his beloved is certain, and it is fruitful root of favors has as numerous as they are precious. Believer, sit down and inwardly digest the instructive sentence now before us, and learn to view the uncaused love of God as the cause of all the loving kindness of which we are to be partakers. Listen to this. Believers, sit down. And inwardly digest the instructive sentence now before us. I'll never forget that day when I was saved. I was a rare one. Not everybody knows the day they got they, that I got saved. But I remember being radically saved and radically changed by a radical God. And I knew that my sentence before that would have been death and hell. Because I transgressed God's law. But by the grace of God, he saved a wretch like me. And I have a future sentence that I'm going to face on Judgment Day. And only because of what Christ accomplished on that cross will God allow me into heaven. Because of what Christ did on that cross for sinners like me. Before I finish the sermon, I just want to talk a little bit about the law and the gospel. What are we going to be judged by on Judgment Day? We're going to be judged by God's law. The Ten Commandments, they're out there. On that big plaque, we preach them from this pulpit. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt honor thy mother and father. Thou shalt not commit idolatry. I've broken all ten commandments and so have you. Because God is just, righteous, and holy. He says that he will not allow sin to go unpunished. People, listen to this. We're going to stand before God one day. Naked we come, came into this world. And one day we're going to stand before God, butt naked. I know that doesn't sound very scholarly. We're going to have to give an account for every sin we've ever committed. And God, because he is just, he has to throw us into hell to punish us for our sins. But Christ, Christ, Christ. No, God, please don't cast me into hell. Christ, I believe in Christ. That God came to us in the form of a man. This is the good news, church. And good news, anybody here that might not be saved? And the remedy is this, that God came to us in the form of man. God put skin on in the form of Jesus, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the virgin birth. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The only one that kept all of the law, all of the law that none of us would keep. 
all of the law he kept, that all of us broke. He stood before the Father, he went to that cross and he was crucified. And he was buried on the third day, he bodily rose from that grave. Again, the resurrection, the resurrection again. And now he's, he's ascended into heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And what Christ did for me, which I don't deserve, is he imputed his righteousness to me. And my sins were imputed to him. And then Jesus declared this sinner righteous before the Father. And that's the only reason why I'm going to heaven. I know we've said that many times from the pulpit, but it's never, never enough to keep repeating that. That's briefly the law and the gospel. That Christ did that. He delivered me. And everybody that's saved in this congregation, he delivered you too. Those are glorious things. Praise God for salvation. And the Bible says that if you truly believe in that, we can't trust in religion. Religion has sent more people to hell than all the bars in this universe. But we trust in Christ alone for salvation. If we repent and believe in that gospel message, if we change our mind of who we are, that we're sinners and we need to be saved from our sins, and change our mind of who God is and who Christ is, and believe in that gospel and trust Him alone for salvation, if we call upon Him for salvation, the Bible says we will be saved. And then you will know truly the love of God. But in summary, here's what our Lord did for David. This is what the Lord did for his church, the bride of Christ. This is what the Lord did for followers, born-again followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent out his arrows. God sent from above. He reached down. He drew him out of treacherous waters. He scattered them. God shot out lightning bolts. He disconfitted his enemies. He thundered in the heavens. He took hold of him. His rebuke rattled the foundations of the world. He gave his voice. He breathed out wrath from his nostrils. His wrath protected David from his enemies. He sent out hailstones and coals of fire. He brought out, he brought him, and brought him forth. He brought him out. He rescued him. He delivered him. He saved him. He, God, was his stay. And all because he delighted in him. All because God loved him. And David loved him because God first loved him. Because of our salvation and our deliverances, if you're saved... We owe our lives to Christ, the son of the seed of David. We ought to be willing to die for the cause of Christ. Before I was saved, I was a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. But because of Christ's redemptive work, because of Christ's penal substitution, because of Christ's justification, where he on that cross declared me a sinner, righteous before the Father, as well as the rest of his bride, God now delights in me. And God now delights in every saved saint that is sitting in this congregation. Don't ever forget that. Grasp onto that thought. Father, we thank you for your word of God. We thank you for the salvation of every saint sitting in this sanctuary. We thank you, Christ, 
for the justification and redemption of sins. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the gifts you give us, for your means of grace that we are about to participate through your Holy Communion as well. We ask that you would encourage us, help us put on the Lord Jesus Christ even more than we already do. Help us trust in him more than we already do. We pray that you will build up our faith and trust in you, our confidence in you, our courage that comes from you. In Christ's name, amen.